Hello and welcome back to uh, the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at the second half of Zora Neale Hurston's Dust Tracks on a Road, which was her 1942 memoirs. Uh, we looked at the first half of the book in the last episode, which covered her childhood, her parents, uh, the community she grew up in, uh, her early schooling, her development of her curiosity and her particular imagination. Uh, and then we saw how she went out and worked and how that got in the way of her education for a number of years. So that's the first eight chapters. In chapter nine, it's called School Again. And yes, it picks up with her return to school, which begins in 1917. And she was born in 1891. So she's already into her 20s when she returns to school and she's returning to high school uh, to finish that up. And this chapter, it's a fairly lengthy one in the context of this of this book, um, but it goes up through about 1925, which covers her her beginning of her, her academic life, her fieldwork into folklore and all that. So there's a lot of time covered in chapter nine, and it's all under the title of school again. Now, uh, we talked a little bit about Zora Neale Hurston's politics, her attitude towards Jim Crow. Um, one thing she says a lot in her, in her, in her essays or nonfiction writing about her own life and her upbringing is that Eatonville, where she grew up in Florida, was an all-black community. It was a community that in Reconstruction had black self-rule very early on. And so race wasn't a big part of how she saw herself growing up. It wasn't until later when she started to see more of the world that she started to see the impact of race on black people more broadly. I think she's not denying the real reality of Jim Crow for many people, but at the same time, it certainly did affect her that her most formative years were in a climate in which race wasn't a big deal. And she even made a point when she was in this uh, Gilbert and Sullivan troop uh, that was discussed in chapter eight, how she was the only black woman. So she kind of commented there as well, how race was a huge part of her life. And this has um, been something that's, that's kind of, you know, been something that's been known about Zora Hurston, something that kind of held back some of her fame, especially in the civil rights years. She, she died in poverty. She died working as a maid. Uh, most of all of her books were off print. She died fairly forgotten. Um, and that may have had something to do with it. I, I, we'll look at the last essay she wrote, which directly deals with uh, the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Very, very controversial essay. But anyways, what I'm trying to say is in the second half of Dust Tracks on a Road, we get a little bit more about Zero Neil Hurston's overt politics about the color line, about racial solidarity and, and all that. So uh, we'll get to that when we get to it. But for now, I just want to kind of go through the chapters that make up the rest of this book. It'll be uh, chapters 9 through through 16, I think. Yeah, so there's um, eight more chapters <clears throat> to look at in this, this book. I'll try to go through this fairly quickly um, and then get to kind of my overall thoughts about dust tracks um, on a road. So um, 
she she starts out in 19 around 1917 realizing she needs to get money for schooling and she starts working for that and she gets appendicitis and this uh, got in the way of her kind of her return to school but nevertheless she decides to go back to school while she's in in baltimore and while at school she gets exposed a little bit more to literature and and that's of course going to have a big impact on her life she will be a fiction writer um I, i've kind of had second thoughts about whether i want to look at her fiction writing right now the, the biggest reason for that being there are no audiobooks of those and it's all in black vernacular it's it's kind of um i don't know it's a bit intimidating so i i'm not sure if i if i will yet or not i'm still trying to decide but anyways um this is where she got her interest in in literature a little bit more. Of course, we already saw how she had a deep exposure to a lot of um, fiction from from earlier on, folklore in particular. She eventually transfers to Morgan College and a work study program. Now, Morgan College, not to be too confusing, is actually like a, was a high where she was going was a high school branch of of Morgan College. So it's kind of a, a supplemental education for people before they could go to college. Uh, but you know, they you know, and this was in the days when not everywhere had fully well developed public schools yet, so or public schools for K through 12 or something. So people weren't, it wasn't taken for granted that you'd get go to school till you're through high school. So a lot of colleges set up these kinds of high school, um, equivalency essentially programs for, for students who had the resources. And she didn't, as Orton Newhurston did not have those resources, but she did go on some kind of work study program. And after two years there, she eventually transfers to college at, at Howard. Now, she's pretty subtle about this, but she, she basically pretends she's a lot younger than she is to go to college. And she talks about her social life a little bit at this, this high school. And she seems pretty, uh, you know, close to a lot of these students. And I'm not sure their age. I'm sure many of them were, were, were teenagers. So... But anyways, after two years of this, she transfers to college at Howard, of course, which is one of the top, I think the top uh, black university at the time. Okay, so in the, the context of this chapter, she talks about a Jim Crow experience. And, and, and I think this is, it's not the first time she mentions race in this memoir, but it's the first time she really takes on Jim Crow directly in in any substantial way and it's a fairly long conversation and her commentary on it helps but it's, it's worth looking at so you're gonna have to bear with me as i i look at this but i think this is uh a key in in thinking about her politics about jim crow okay uh quote an incident happened that made me realize how theories go by the board when a person's livelihood is threatened a man, a Negro, came into the shop one afternoon and sat down in Banks' chair. Banks was a manager and had a first chair by the door. It was so surprising that for a minute, Banks just looked at him and never said a word. Finally, he found his tongue and asked, What do you want? Hair and shave, the man said belligerently. But you can't get no hair shave, haircut and shave here. Mr. Robinson has a fine shop for Negroes on U Street near 15th, Banks told him. I know that, but I want one here. The Constitution of the United States. By that time, Banks... Had him by the arm, not roughly, but he was helping him out of the chair nonetheless. I don't know how to cut your hair, Banks objected. I was trained on straight hair. Nobody in here knows how. Oh, don't hand me that stuff, the crusader snarled. Don't be such an Uncle Tom. Run on, fellow. You can't get weighted on here. I'll stay right here until I do. I know my rights. Things like this have got to be broken up. I'll get weighted on, all right, or I'll sue. Go ahead and sue, Banks retorted. Go on uptown and get your hair cut, man. Don't be so hard-headed for nothing. I'm getting way down right here. You're next, Mr. Powell, Banks said, waving to the next customer. 
Sorry, mister, but you better go uptown. But I have a right to be way down wherever I please, the Negro said and started up towards Updike's chair, which was being emptied. Updike whirled his chair around so that he could not sit down and stepped in front of him. Don't you go touch my chair, Updike glared. Go on about your business. But instead of going, he made he made to get into the chair by force. Don't argue with him. Throw him out of here, somebody in the back cried. And in a minute, Barber's customers all lathered up with half haircut and porters were all helping to throw the Negro out. The rush carried him out into the middle of G Street and flung him down. He tried to lie there and be a martyr, but the roar of oncoming cars made him jump up and scurry off. We never heard any more about it. I did not participate in the melee, but I wanted him thrown out too. My business was threatened. It was only that night in bed that I analyzed the whole thing and realized that I was giving sanction to Jim Crow, which theoretically I was supposed to resist. But here were ten Negro barbers, three porters, and two minicurists all stirred up at the threat of our living through loss of patronage. Nobody thought it out at the moment. It was an instinctive thing. That was the first time that I was called to my attention that self-interest rides over all sorts of lives. I have seen the same thing happen a hundred times since, and now I understand it. One sees it breaking over racial, national, religious, and class lines, Anglo-Saxon against Anglo-Saxon, Jew against Jew, Negro against Negro, and all sorts of combinations of the three against other combinations of the three. Offhand, you might say that we 15 Negroes should have felt the racial thing and served him. But he was one of us, perhaps, or he was one of us, perhaps it would have been a beautiful thing if banks had turned to the crop, shouted with, shouted with customers, and announced that this man was going to be served like everyone else even at the risk of losing their patronage. But all the other employees lined up in the center of the floor shouting, so say we all. It would have been a stirring gesture and made the headlines for the day. Then we would have all gone home and our unpaid rent and bills and things like that. I could leave school and begin my wanderings again. The militant Negro who would have been the cause of it all would have been perched and smuggled up wreck of things in crowd. Nobody ever found out who or what he was. Perhaps he did what he did on the spur of the moment, not realizing that serving him would have ruined Mr. Robinson, another Negro who who had got what he had the hard way, end quote. And that's basically the point here is, um, you know, I guess, you know, one thing I, I, I've read about in history books in, in Jim Crow wasn't quite this situation because here you have black servants serving only white customers in an establishment, right? Um and of course, their employment is tied to is not as reliant on Jim Crow, perhaps, as this other thing I, I'm going to mention. Because I, I mean, I, I read about this in some books of, of African American history, and that's that there were many people in the black middle class who, how do we say this delicately? Who, you know, when you had separate establishments for blacks and whites, you know, schools, whatever, universities. Uh, restaurants that created a lot of opportunities for black entrepreneurs to create establishments that cater to black customers right and this is what Zerna Hurston says when she writes her criticism of uh, Brown versus Board of Education is essentially what you're doing is you're putting out of business a lot of black teachers who you know make their living teaching black kids right and who's to say they don't do a great job doing that and are actually better for those kids to, to, to learn from black teachers. And that's kind of what she's getting to hear, though she's coming at it from the perspective of, of, of black workers who, who, who all their patrons are, are white. But because of Jim Crow, they can't patronize black customers as well. But they're not going to martyr themselves uh, for economic, economic opportunity. Now, I don't know of any like kind of 
statistical analysis of how many, you know, how many black business people benefited from Jim Crow or how much, or would they have been better off, you know, in a more open system? You know, I don't know, but it's just something I came across when I was reading. And I thought of it when I was looking at this, this example, this, that, that, that seemed to impact uh, Zora Neale Hurston quite a lot in her thinking of, of, of the politics of Jim Crow. Anyways, so she's at Howard University while this event takes place. And it's around that time that she also begins writing. Now, she never completes her work at Howard University. She finishes two years there, essentially associate's degree at, at Howard. But that's, again, it's a, it's a associate's degree from the top black university in America. Um, she gets a, she later on, she starts writing. She starts writing in, you know, newspapers and things like that. Starts becoming interested in folklore. And she gets a scholarship to study at Barnard College. And that's a place where she's the only white student. So, again, thinking about Zora Neale Hurston's experiences with race. She, you know, at Ettenville, at Howard, she's in largely black social contexts. And then other times she's in very much white or ethnically mixed places, but where she's often the, the lone black person. And this is the second time it's happened to her in her life. First, it was the Gilbert and Sullivan troupe, where she was the only black worker in that group. She was a servant to one of the actors. And here, she was the only black student in this this university. Um, but, it, you know, that, she talks a little bit about what it's like being, what it was like for her to be the only black student at this, at this university. But she does it, it's not a big deal for her, actually. Here's what she says. She says, I have no lurid tales to tell of racial discrimination at Barnard. I made a few friends in the first few days. Eleanor Beer, who lived on the next lived on the next chair to me in economics, was the first. She was a New York girl with a sumptuous house down in the West 71st Street near the Hudson. She invited me down often and her mother set off to brush me up on good manners. I learned a lot of things about them. They were well-traveled and cosmopolitan. Um... The social register crowd at Barnard took me up, and I became Barnard's sacred black cow. If you had not, if you didn't have lunch with me, you did not, uh, you had not shot from the taw. I was secretary of Fanny Hurst and living on the 76th Street duplex apartment. But on and on, right? A bit of celebrity, maybe, but uh, not overtly racial, racially discriminated. There. Um, yeah, a little bit more on politics here. She, this is, I think, the first mention she makes of Booker T. Washington, who was a big influence on, on her and her attitude. She says of Booker T. Washington, he had once said that he must not judge a man by the heights to which he had, once said that you must not judge a man by the heights to which he had risen, but by the depths from which he came. Booker T. Washington, of course, calls this book Up From Slavery. Um, Anyways, so uh, going on. So to me, these honors meant something insignificant as they might appear in the world. It was a long step from the wave of Ettenville. From the depth of my inner heart, I appreciated the fact that the world had not been altogether unkind to Mama's child. So as we end chapter nine, that's the feeling we got. She's not presenting herself as the victim of, of racial discrimination at all. And she's very, very clearly not trying to do that. And it's not like... Th- at some point in the novel, she realizes how horrible Jim Crow is and she becomes a, you know, some kind of consciousness-raising event. She's much more on the side of telling the story of her uplift, her self-uplift, and, and her individual story of how she overcame these things. She's not that consciously interested in 
race as a political concept. She's interested in black folklore, of course. She's interested in um, those, those kind of cultural experiences, which she thinks are deep and legitimate and, and valuable of recording. Obviously, she wrote a book about it. But she's not that into black politics, which I think is a really striking aspect of her compared to a lot of the other black writers we wrote up or I talked about on this podcast in the past, whether it's James Johnson or Du Bois or any of the Harlem Renaissance writers, Charles Chestnut. Uh, actually, I did quite a few black writers uh, in the series, but it wasn't, you know, there wasn't, those, a lot of those writers had race and the color line and the struggle for racial justice at the forefront of their thoughts. And, and I think Zora Hurston doesn't to the same degree. And it's very, very clear from our autobiography that that's the case. Okay, the next chapter, I, I'm spending too much time on this. The next chapter, chapter 10, is called Research. And this covers roughly not, I had to kind of piece it together from the chronology that these books have with the events, because she doesn't really say year to year what happens. But it covers roughly 1926 to, I think, 1928. Um, and, and this is a really great chapter. What can I say? Wonderful chapter. Really, really cool stuff. Really, really interesting. Um, it really talks about her going out, getting various funding. She, she got some funding from the, you know, from regular academic research for folklore. Later on in the 30s, she's going to get some, some um, WPA money. I'll talk about those essays she works on for the WPA in the next episode when we look at her assorted essays. Um, but here she goes down to do anthropological research. This is the stuff that's going to become Yulton Men, the book we already talked about. Um, and she's, she's trouble because basically her first attitude is basically, all right, I'll go to the South. I'll say, tell me some folklore. I'll write it down. I'll go home. You know, she, that's what she thought field work was. And she learned very quickly that's not how it works. And she has to get advice from experts and scholars. And she talks to various um, scholars in folklore and anthropology. And she learns that it's not that easy that you have to kind of understand the community, learn their language, get kind of get ensconced, build that rapport, all those things you learn in freshman anthropology. Uh, of course, not that Zorna Hurston didn't learn that earlier in her studies, but she didn't experience it, right? She didn't step into folklore studies yet. This was her first time, right? So any of us who, you know, the first time, we, even if it's a library, go to the library first time, thinking, I'm going to research this thing, and you end up finding out, hey, you know, that you're doing it wrong or you're looking in the wrong place, whatever. You have to get help. You have to get help. And I think Zora Neale Hurston's really honest about the difficulty she had early on and how kind of ridiculous her early attempts at uh, ethnography was, were. Um, the other really fascinating thing in this chapter is she talks about the dangers she faced when she finally does go into the logging yards. Because, um, you know, if you, if you remember from Mules and Men, she talked about Enville early on. Later on, she collected a lot of folklore from the logging mill, these, these mills. And this is a big part of the Southern economy in the post-Civil War era. You had huge forests ready to be exploited <clears throat> by logging companies. And, you know, some people have, have argued that kind of blues had its roots in these logging mills because these were kind of migratory camps in the woods. That There'd be temporary mills that'd be set up to process the lumber that would chop down in one particular part of the forest and there'd be temporary kind of little cities that would pop up there which would have you know bars saloons and you know whatever you call them you know there'd be sex workers there and people at night would drink and 
blues emerged out of this social context, right? One of many places, I suppose, throughout the South that, that blues sort of developed. Um, but folklore would also be alive and well in a place like this, right? These are people who away from their families, you know, have time on their hands to imagine things, to, to tell stories, to reflect on all sorts of issues. Um, but nevertheless, they're also very, very dangerous places. And she emphasizes how dangerous it was. She says, my life was in danger several times. If I had not learned how to take care of myself in those circumstances, I could have been maimed or killed on most any day of the several years of my research work. Primitive minds are quick to sunshine and quick to anger. Some little word, a look, or gesture could move them either to love you or stick a knife between your ribs. You just had a sense of delicate balance and maintain it. And she talks, goes on and on about this. Also, some of the work she goes into in collecting folklore, some of the songs she, she approached uh, or she was able to record, um, but very, very violent place. She emphasizes how violent the sawmills were and just really great social history here about social history of this working class culture that developed in the post-Civil War or South. Of course, this is in the 18, 1920s, um, quite a while after that, but it's still part of it, right? Uh, still part of that economy, you know, it was logging, it was coal, some manufacturing like textiles, um, but like mining, extractive industries became a big part of the southern economy uh, in the, the so-called New South. Um, she talked about that. She talks about her introduction to American, or I should say U.S. voodoo here. And finally, she talks about her overseas voyages and, and, and the trips. Of course, she ends up going to Haiti and Jamaica and Nassau. Uh, that Nassau she doesn't talk much about in her in Mules and Men or, or Tell My Horse. I don't think she mentioned it at all, but she did spend time in Nassau in the Bahamas. Um, and she talks about that as well. Um, and really a fascinating chapter, just in someone learning to be a researcher and and experiencing pretty intense danger while while gaining this knowledge, uh, do, while doing the hard work of gaining knowledge. Now, she also talks about kind of the danger of folklore studies. And here she's not talking about the physical danger that she's certainly admitting to here, but talking about over-enthusiasm as the big danger of folklore studies. And that is partially taking the stories you read at face value, taking them too seriously, taking... Um, I mean, this is something she really, really talked about in Meals and Men quite directly, saying, you know, a part of black folklore is is fooling white people right and and so these stories are not always meant to be taken seriously but sometimes they're presented in such a way because white people did take them seriously and it becomes all kind of a big joke on the listener at times or in, the, in our case the anthropologist who realizes these stories are interesting to white people and therefore you you sort of make it up or you you come over enthusiastic and it's also a problem of over-enthusiasm, also a problem for the researcher themselves, who's just eager to kind of write down everything and just take everything in because it's cool or, or interesting. You know? And I certainly fall into that. I appreciate that because I read these Library of America books and I find them all awesome. I, you know, rarely say anything bad about these books because I am also one of these over-enthusiastic researchers, I suppose. Um, what else do we have in this chapter? Uh Oh, Cudgel Lewis. This uh, is something I think Zorna Hirschel is quite proud of because she spends like five or six pages in this 
memoir talking about Cudgel Lewis. Cudgel Lewis was reportedly, allegedly, we don't, I guess we don't know for sure, but um, at the time she believed this, the last living African-born you know, African-American. Um, at least, I, I don't want to say that because I'm sure there were migrants since then. Um, the last living survivor of the transatlantic slave trade uh, living in the United States, right? So that, that makes sense. Captured in Africa, sold in Africa to, came to America and survived until 1920s. Um, now think about this. Slave trade ends in 1808. Of course, there was some illicit slave trade after that. And in that, you know, some people from the Caribbean got in. So he's pretty long in the tooth here, if this is a true story. Uh, must have came over quite young. But he had stories about Africa, which are very interesting to read. Uh, now, what I'm trying to say is, like, in the 30s, the, a lot of the New Deal writers' projects involved interviewing slaves, or interviewing people who were once slaves, uh, interviewing people who maybe had stories from their grandparents or whatever. I mean, we are already at a stage in 1930s where we were running out of people who, who had literal memories of slavery, in, you know, from the 1860s. Or if they did, they were getting kind of old themselves or they were quite young as, uh, when they were enslaved. But to have someone who was had memories of Africa is, of course, very striking. And Zora Neale Hurston really kind of sucks his brain for whatever information she can um, get. Um, and one thing she mentions here is something we've talked about before on this podcast when we looked at Du Bois' work on the slave trade. Uh, I don't think we did the slave narratives yet, but we probably should. Uh, and that is, um, I'll, I'll just read it here. Uh, he told me in detail of the circumstances in Africa that brought about his slavery there, how the powerful kingdom of Dahomey, finding the slave trade so profitable, had abandoned farming, hunting, and all else to capture slaves, to stock the barracoons on the beach of Dimya, to sell to the slavers who came across the ocean, how corals were manufactured by the king of Dahomey, uh, with more peaceful agricultural nations and striking distance of Dahomey and Nigeria and the Gold Coast, and how they were assaulted, completely wiped off the map, their names never to appear again, except when they were named in boastful chant before the king at one of his customs, when his glory was being sung. The able-bodied who were captured were marched to Abomey, the capital city of Dahomey, and displayed to the king and then put into the barracoons to await a buyer. The too old, the too young, or the injured in battle were instantly beheaded and their heads smoked and carried back to the king. He paid uh, off on heads dead or alive. The skulls of the slaughter were not wasted either. The king had his famous palace of skulls. Um, blah, blah, blah. More of the story. Jumping ahead. The one thing that impressed me most strongly from the three months of association with Cudgel Lewis, the white people that held my people in slavery here in America, they had brought us it is true and exploited us, but the unescapable fact that stuck in my craw was my people had sold me and the white people had bought me. That did away with the folklore I had been brought up on, that the white people have gone to Africa, waved a red handkerchief at the Africans, lured them aboard ship and sailed away. I knew that civilized money stirred up African greed, that wars between tribes were often stirred up by white traders to provide more slaves in the barracoons and all that. But if the African princes had been as pure and innocent as I would like to think, it could not have happened. No, my only people had butchered and killed, exterminated whole nations and torn families apart for a profit before the strangers got a chance at a cut. It was a sobering thought. All right. Very, very uh, 
key. Again, she's not writing a political memoir or being overtly political, but she slips in a lot of, especially in the second half of this book, brings in a lot of what her, her politics are. Um, next, Books and Things, Chapter 11, Books and Things. The shortest chapter in the memoirs, I think, or one of the shortest, very, very short, uh, only a few pages, where she basically talks about her interest in writing fiction and how she started writing, and she says very little about it. I think maybe this is just a, a strategic decision, assuming that people who read this book had read her novels and, or her other books and didn't need to get a blow by blow of how those novels were written. She just sort of, at this point in my life, I started to write. Uh, fiction and other books and she just mentions a little bit so not that much to say about this section um, other than yeah I think that's it I think that's all I have to say about it but then we get to chapter 12 which is another really important one and it's called my people my people and this is her perspective on on the, on, the, on racial pride and its role and and you know the 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 black struggle the freedom struggle as it was going on at this time right she's writing in 42 but she's of course you know you've had a generation couple generations of the black freedom struggle since the end of slavery right 40 years into jim crow give or take depending on the state we're talking about um but only 10 years before you know brown versus board of education you know, only 15 years before, you know, the peak of the civil rights movement and its, and its achievements in the mid-1960s. So she's at the tail end of this, this kind of long period of, of, of argument and debate about the best approach to improve black people's lives before, like, the, the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. It really takes those threads and pushes them forward to real concrete achievements in the South, leading to the end of Jim Crow. Of course, by the by the mid '60s, um, and here she takes on directly the concept of of you know issues like class, issues of education, uh, and a various terms that she uses a bit interchangeably, but she talks about them separately. Uh, but there's certainly overlap there, and those are race pride, race man, race solidarity, race consciousness, race. In general, so she said, should we use this? Should this be our rubric for, for discussing the improvement of the lives of, of black people in America? Should should race be the cornerstone, racial pride, racial solidarity be the cornerstone of our struggle? Or should there be some kind of other rubric we're using? Now, she sort of starts this conversation by acknowledging racial difference or no, not, not no class differences. I mean, class differences among black Americans by this time. You know, you have a growing middle class, quite strong black middle class by this time. You have, you, you have, you know, a generation of people going to university by this time. You know, I think Du Bois was the first to graduate from, from Harvard, of course, but you had historic, you know, what are now historically black colleges set up, um, now called historically black colleges set up, you know, immediately after the Civil War. So you had decades of, of, the emergence of college-educated black people, many of whom enter into this middle class. Um, you know, and she talk, She starts off by saying, you know, this concept of, she starts, my people, my people, that's the name of the chapter, my people, my people. From the earliest rockings of my cradle days, I heard this cry go up from Negro lips. 
It is forced outward by pity, scorn, and hopeless resignation. It is called forth by the observation of one class of Negroes on the doings of another branch of the brother in black. For instance, well-mannered Negroes groan out like that when they board a train or a field or find other Negroes on there with their shoes off, stuffing themselves with fried fish, bananas, and peanuts and throwing the garbage on the floor. Maybe they're not only eating and drinking. The offenders might be loud-talking the place and holding back nothing of their private lives. It's a voice that embraces the entire coach. The well-dressed Negro shrinks back into his seat at that and shakes his head and sighs, my people, my people. That's all in one paragraph. And we see two different tones with this, you know, my people, my people being, a, you know, the, you know, kind of a cry of racial pride. You know, like of solidarity. But by the end of the paragraph, we're told, no, this is the, the depressed anguish of, of the educated, the middle class black people seeing the lower class blacks, you know, in public life. Going on, now the well-mannered Negro is embarrassed by the crude behavior of the others. They are not friends and have never seen each other before. So why should he or she be embarrassed? It's like this. The well-bred Negro has looked around and seen America with his eyes. He or she has sat himself up to measure up to what he thinks of as the white standard of living. He is conscious of the fact that the Negro in America needs more respect and is expected to get any acceptance at all. Therefore, after straining every nerve to get an education, making an attractive home, dressed out decently and otherwise conform, he's dismayed at the sight of other Negroes tearing down what he's trying to build up. So there you have it. That's this class tension and the, the role, how education divides this, gets in the way of, of any racial solidarity. But then the question is, is racial solidarity, race consciousness, worth, is, is this the proper strategy anyways? Should we, be, should we be going for this? And ultimately she says no. Ultimately she says these are just cliches. These are just ridiculous cliches uh, that don't really have any meaning in actual lived experiences um so then what's the solution well you know i don't know again she's not like she's not a civil rights activist she's not in the forefront of that her interest is in folklore and literature and communities and and individual experiences uh I, you know i'm still deciding whether to talk about her novels or all but that's key in her novels as well and she says here the black experience is so diverse that any attempt at solidarity of what, you know, black nationalism or something like that is doomed to fail. And she says, again, what we need to focus on is the individual. She writes here, light came to me and I realized that I did not have to consider any racial group as a whole. God made them duck by duck. And that was the only way I could see them. I learned that skin was no measure of what was inside people. So none of the race cliches meant anything anymore. I began to laugh at both white and blacks who claim special blessings on the basis of race. Therefore, I saw no curse in being black, nor no extra flavor in being white. I saw no benefit in excusing my looks on claiming to be half Indian. In fact, I boast that I am the only Negro in the United States whose grandfather on his mother's side was not an Indian chief. Neither did I descend from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, nor any governor of a southern state. I see no need to manufacture me a legend to beat the facts. I do not coyly admit to the touch of a tar brush to my Indian and white ancestry. You can consider me old tar brush in person if you like to. I'm a mixed blood is true, but I differ from the party line in that I'm neither considered an honor nor a shame. I neither claim Jefferson as my grandpa nor claim, just look how that white man took advantage of my grandma. It does not matter in the first place. And then in the next place, I do not know how it came about. Ever since 
Or since nobody ever told me that, I give my ancestress the benefit of the doubt. She probably ran to him just as fast as she could. But if the white man could run faster than my grandma, that was no fault of hers. Anyway, you must remember, he didn't have a thing to do but to keep on running forward. She being the pursued had to look back over her shoulder every now and then to see how she was doing. And you know your oneself, how looking back slows people down. Um, so that's that kind of sums up, I think, her feelings on on um, racial struggle. I mean, I guess, you know, this conforms with what most people, I guess, casually know about Zora Neale Hurston's politics. She was a Republican. Um, you know, of course, many black people were Republicans at that time before the New Deal. But even after the New Deal, she remained um, a Republican. She supported uh, Robert A. Taft's presidential campaign in 1952. Um, and she's and she was kind of a supporter of the Booker T. Washington variant of kind of self-help politics. And she, I mean, that's all confirmed here. But if you want to get your head around her politics, I think this is a good chapter to read. My people, my people. Um, the rest of the book, I think we can just kind of hit the highlights of. Uh, chapter 13 is called Two Women in Particular, which is just about a couple friendships she made uh, in her life. Uh, chapter 14 is about love, and I think this is just a fascinating reflection on romantic um, love. Um, she kind of even has her own kind of relationship advice, one being <laughs> expect to be people flirt with you, second to maintain friendships even when love affairs um, fall apart, and the third to understand the fleetiness and capriciousness of, of love. Um, so that, that's, that's her advice to... To herself. I mean, she's not the kind of person who can give too much advice to others. She comes off a bit skeptical of of romantic love, it seems to me. You know, she calls it once uh, a golded up moment walking in its sleep. Some people know that it's the walk of the dead, but in desperation and desolation, they have stalked everything in life after death on the resurrection, so they haunt the graveyard. They build an altar on the tomb and wait there like the faithful Mary to roll the stone of the tomb away. The movement has authority over their whole lives, end quote. Now, I kind of believe this. I, I think, you know, people, I mean, when you fall in love, I mean, those emotions are so powerful. They're, they're overwhelmingly powerful. And however that relationship ends up, you know, you're searching for that your whole life, even if it's within your own relationship, even if you stay with that person, you're searching for those first feelings. It's so hard to maintain. And so many people get disillusioned about relationships. They don't realize that just the biochemical changes in our own bodies over the course of relationship, right? We, you know, it's like taking, you take a drug and you're constantly trying to re rehab that same experience that you had when you first took that drug, you know, and for whatever reason, you can't get there again. Um, it's like that with love, right? And so you might end up with serial monogamy as a way of mitigating that or find different ways to try to revive this feeling in relationships. But, you know, we end up kind of searching for it. And she talks about it here almost like the living dead. Very, very interesting description, I think, of, of romance. And she talks a little bit about her love affairs here, although she's not too lurid and not that interested in giving people lurid details. Chapter 15 is called Religion. Um, and here, you know, she seems to be somewhat a Christian. She talks about kind of raising 
being raised as a Christian and seeing Christianity as part of her culture, something as much as she's an individualist, I think she realizes the importance of community, the importance of traditions. Um, she's kind of an, a conservative in that sense that you you hold on to those traditions. Well, you know, that's one reason she's interested in folklore, I think. But she, you know, she's kind of thinks religion is bogus, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, so outside of it being part of her culture, maybe being a cultural Christian, as a, you know, she's not a believer. And, you know, she, she doesn't go so far as to be an atheist, but she just has a lot of contempt for for religion you know prayer here she says prayers for those who need it prayer seems to me the cry of weakness and an attempt to avoid by trickery the rules of the game is laid out i do not choose to admit weakness i accept the challenge of responsibility life as it is does not frighten me since i have made my peace with the universe as i find it and bow to its laws um and um that's pretty much it there's a short chapter concluding dust tracks on the road called looking things over uh where she sums up a little bit of her views on race but I think we already know them all. So here we are. Um, now, this particular edition, the Library of America edition, gives, has an appendix which has kind of different versions of of my a different version of my people, my people, written when she was in Haiti. I think this was written earlier, and then a few chapters that were sort of rejected or not included in the final um, book. But I didn't read these. They're in an appendix, so don't blame me. But I probably should because. It sounds like, based on the little introduction we get from the Library of America, that Henry Louis Gates Jr. helped with the editing of this book, this particular book within the volume, and and played a role in finding these chapters and, and laying them out. But I didn't talk about them, so I'm sorry. But, you know, I was ready to move on at that point. So anyways, that is Dust Tracks on the Road. Um... Just tracks, dust tracks on a road. Sorry, that's dust tracks on a road. Zora Neale Hurston's memoirs, a great place to go for her political views on race. Uh, also, a really interesting life experience. Uh, someone who kind of goes back to school as an adult, faces those challenges, uh, kind of enters into her profession quite late. Uh, great stuff on the social history of of community in Ettenville, mobility. Uh, in families, uh, the tension, like the relationship with her stepmother, is so visceral here. It's a great part of the story. We have uh, her experience as an ethnographer, collecting folklore. That's great stuff. So there's a lot to really like, I think, in Dust Treks on a Road. And whatever you think of her politics, I think this is an important book to read. Maybe even more important than Mules and Men and The Tell My Horse. Um, important one, but don't go to it looking for a you know, kind of a, a memoir on Jim Crow or a memoir of of the racial struggle, because that's not what Zerlin Hurston was about. That's, that's you know, she was an individualist. Probably she was a libertarian. I mean, if she was alive today, she'd probably associate more with the libertarians. I get, the, I get that sense. Um, but anyways, um, very, very fascinating book. So I liked it, um, and I enjoyed reading Zerlin Hurston stuff. So anyways, next time, in the next episode, I will finish up my thoughts on Zerona Hurston by looking at her, her essays. I have, still haven't decided if I'm going to read her novels yet. Um, you know, I started reading Jonah's uh, Vine Gord, Gord Vine, Jonah's Gord Vine. And I really wish I had an audiobook version of that. Um, 
just because it's it kind of gives me a headache to read the african-american vernacular english but anyways i might give it a try if not i'll just move on i'll be looking at some historians after that we'll see um but still we're not quite done with her because we got some great essays to talk about 22 of them in fact uh collect you know in about 100 pages collected at the end of this and uh, anthology of her nonfiction writing so we'll look at that in the next episode i'll have more to say about her politics but also her folklore we get a nice summary a right nice review of many of her ideas so anyways um that's going to be it for now uh thanks for listening thanks for sharing this experience with me if you have any of your own thoughts about zora neale hurston her politics her life uh her views on religion whatever please leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would very much love to hear from you. Uh, but that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time. And, uh, yeah, I'll Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes. Oh, don't you hear them? A cuckoo, cuckoo, but he.